Let's open up with a word of prayer. Lord, we come before you together as a community of believers. We're grateful for this day of life. We're grateful to be here together. Thank you for the beautiful morning, for the sunshine, for the mild temperature. Thank you for this place of worship, for the safety we enjoy. We pray for others who are worshiping you this morning in other places, even here in town, but also around the world. We pray that you will send your angels to protect Christians who are wor worshiping you this morning. Help us, Lord, to slow down and pay attention. In Jesus' name, amen. So, there are two seats right up here if anybody wants them. Um, so, two weeks ago, before... Uh, two Sundays before Thanksgiving, we talked about um, worry a little bit, and we looked at the Sermon on the Mount and were reminded um, what Jesus has to say about worry, and one of the things he has to say about worry is consider the lilies of the field. And we drilled down a little bit more into just considering the lilies. And what, um, what can we learn from the word considering in that context? Um, uh, and, and we talked about mindfulness. And um, I took you through a little mindfulness exercise. I'm no pro at that. Um, but I have experienced, and if you've tried mindfulness, you may have experienced too that it's a great tool for kind of interrupting a spin cycle that you may be in when you have a lot to do or feel overwhelmed. Um, you know, worry ha can be mind-altering and it can take over. And um, anytime I know I practice mindfulness, it interrupts that cycle a little bit. It's not like, oh, I can just practice mindfulness for an hour. For me, it does not work that way. Um, for me, it's a, it's a hiccup. So I might only, when I'm really caught up, when I'm really overwhelmed, it's all I can do to be mindful for a few seconds. Um, but it's, it's, a, it's an interruption in that spin cycle. And we talked about anchoring ourselves in the present. And so whatever that looks like for you. This morning, our, you know, our bathroom floor is cold again. In the summer, our bathroom floor feels fine. But in the winter, the bathroom floor is freezing cold. And my first instinct when my bare foot hits that freezing cold ceramic is to think, Arr! 
I've been telling Lee for 15 years to crawl under the house and put more insulation under this bathroom. Or why can't we get a heater and put it in this bathroom? Um, why can't we knock out this bathroom and get a new bathroom? <laughs> it's easy to go there. Um, but what if I feel the bathroom floor with my toes and I feel the cold in my feet and I just kind of lean into that a little bit and the discomfort turns into something a little different. Um, and it's not like I, I do that for a long period of time, but it's, it's very interesting how uh, if, if, if when we have opportunities like that to anchor ourselves in what's real and present and right in front of us, um, just little, little hiccups like that all through the day, um, it's amazing <laughs> how much my shoulders uh, are less knotted up at the end of the day if I can have those little hiccups. Um, so that's what we're that's what we talked about two weeks ago, and I want to get it give it over to Lee soon. But I want to give you guys a chance to share examples of ways you have used mindfulness to anchor yourself in the present and interrupt a worry cycle or a spin cycle that you're mm -hmm. in. There are two up here. And a third right here. There's two, two right here. Too. Oh, good. So we won't do the think, pair, share, but who who is bold and brave to share this morning? I know somebody has something. So, uh, Jeremy. I'm going to go a little, uh, I want to, a, a struggle that I had um, two weeks ago when we talked about that, Lee, I think the week before that you struggled with the James chapter when you're like, consider it pure joy. I don't like the, uh, don't worry about what to eat or to wear. It felt to me very like American centric, like, like, oh, that's easy for us to not, but I have a really hard time with that verse with like the other, you know, 90% of the world who actually do struggle with those. And so like, I just kind of walked away like, man, that was like, that is not a, a real thing. Like I can actually lean into feeling the cold on the floor and appreciate it. And like, that is like a wake up call for me. But there are so many that like, that's just the reality. And like, it's not a good, like it, they do worry. And like, sure. that is a real worry. And so, I just kind of walked away last week or a couple weeks ago just like man like I just that feels very uh, of course this is your audience right like that's who you're speaking to like we ha we can afford to be able to uh, be mindful of those instances but there are so many who can't and I, I just walked away struggling with that a little bit especially in the context of um, the Sermon on the Mount it was just kind of like how do I use that verse for so many people in this world when it is a real reality to them and like I can't authentically express that don't worry sort of mindset. Sure. When I haven't walked in those shoes, I haven't been there. Yeah. Anyway, I just I just kind of walked away with a, a struggle last week, more yeah. or a couple weeks ago, more so than a like, hey, I could use that tool. It was it, I, I kind of got in that cycle of like thinking sure. about that. Sure. Sure. Yeah. Thank you for sharing.
So maybe it's not mine because I don't know. But probably about a month ago, I guess I really tried. Can you to, speak up? Yes, and I'll speak up. So yeah, you might want to turn around. Yeah. <laughs> um, so like a month ago, I guess, um, and I don't know. Some of it's maybe from this class, but you know, I have a a penchant for sarcasm and maybe negativity. I don't know. Perfectionism, maybe that's it. She could probably tell you better than me. Um, but uh, you know that example, right? Um, really tried to and, and noticed a difference in my life of reframing those things and saying, okay, the bathroom bolt—it's not cold. I have a bathroom, right? Um, and made a real effort around that for several weeks. Um, and I got bummed out about a week and a half ago, I guess, and didn't make the effort as well. And you know, there was a visible difference in, in my life to others as well, um, to the point where I think last night you said, you know, in positive Matt come back um, <laughs> <laughs> and visit. So, uh, you know, I think it makes a difference. I think it matters. I don't know if that's mindfulness or not. That may just be reframing, but it, it is living and accepting the moment kind of immersing yourself in it and then moving through it or trying to. Uh, yeah, that's good. Thank you. Anybody else? One last share? Uh, so I've just noticed since two weeks ago, and this, this may be very generational, um, but that when I get stressed out, I have the tendency to get lost in my phone. Good and one. <laughs> that to me, like what I've kind of been noticing is like the exact opposite of mindfulness. Um, because you just get lost in this digital space as opposed to anchoring yourself in, um, in reality. Mm -hmm. And it just, what I've noticed is uh, so two things. One is usually that creates more stress mm -hmm. because it's just this ongoing, you know, battle through social media for whatever conversation is happening. Uh, but then the second is what I've noticed is after having listened to you talk through those practices, uh, I have a choice, um, and where mindfulness takes effort. Um, usually after I practice that at the end of the day, like you're saying, I have, I have much less stress when I'm going to bed, as opposed to days where I've just spent that time sourcing through social media or Twitter or whatever. Yeah. Yeah, I love that because that's a reminder again when I do that, because I do that, yeah. um, I'll, I'll have my phone, I'll take it to my bed because I use it as an alarm. They've just got us so, the tentacles are all in us. We use it for everything. So I take it to bed to use it as an alarm, and then I put it on the bedside table, and I pick up my book. And then sometimes I think, what does that word mean? So I put the book down, and I look up the word, and before I know it, I'm checking on Brad Pitt and Angelina Jolie. <laughs> and then 40 minutes have passed, and Lee is done reading his book, and his light is off. And I'm like, I just, oh, I'm so mad at myself that I did that. But I have the choice again yeah. 
tomorrow. I, I still have the choice. I always am going to have, I have the choice, the blessing of that choice. And I, I can make a different choice tomorrow. All right. Well, thank you. I wanted to uh, share with something, Laura talking about being in the moment. Uh, if I can get the uh, projector to come on there. Is that on? It's on the very top of the screen there. Can you see it? This was a Thanksgiving gathering at uh, my sister's house in North Georgia where we were playing a little game. I don't know if y'all seen this little game where you have the, you put the heads up where you put, have a word on your head and other people are trying to act it out for you and you're trying to guess the uh, word. And I thought that um, I was watching Laura do this with her. She was on a team with um, a couple of my nephews and um, one of her sons. Sorry. She was uh this was her being in the moment. <laughs> my Thanksgiving right there. <laughs> I find myself keep pulling that one up just watching it over and over again. Well, good morning. I do hope you all had a uh, good Thanksgiving. I, um, I want to I continue on the uh, conversation about anxiety and worry and um, you know, you're, you're always you're always walking the line between uh, when when one's own uh, transparency is helpful and when it's not helpful. Um, but I'm going to be a little a little a little transparent, uh, uh, kind of a good bit transparent this morning, hopefully because um, my experience is that um, it helps me when other people are transparent about this kind of stuff. And so let me set it up with this: my experience about anxiety and worry is that I'm wired for it. I was treated for an ulcer when I was in seventh grade. And so from a very young age, I have been wired for anxiety. And I feel it bodily and I feel it physically. I, I had, uh, from starting in middle school, I had heartburn issues all the way up until my mid-40s. Um, and, you know, medicine often wouldn't help. Uh, all sorts of things wouldn't help. So I, I, I'm wired for that kind of stuff. I'm wired for the kind of perfectionism and the shame that kind of comes with that. This took a, uh, a major turn for me about four years ago uh, in which I entered a major depression, major episode of depression that lasted about two and a half years. And it was, uh, it was, it was terribly difficult 
and it was a classic um, where I, what I wanted to do was isolate. There were times where I would um, I would lay in bed and didn't know how to how to face a day. I was traveling some during that time, and I have this I have this very clear memory one day of a Sunday in Santiago, Chile, where I had uh, gone by myself. I had finally gotten out of the apartment where I was staying for work because I knew I had to get out of the apartment. I knew I needed to get out of the apartment, stop isolating. I went to this museum. It was a great museum in downtown Santiago. When I got done with, with the museum, I went and sat on a bench in front of the museum. And I don't know how long I sat there, but for a long time I kept saying to myself, it's time to get up now. It's time to get up now. It's time to get up now. And it's time to get up now. And I just kept sitting and sitting and sitting. And that for me was a kind of major picture of, is a classic picture of what it meant for me to be mired in anxiety and mired in a kind of anxiety that leads to the fruit of depression. Um, it also was a thing that finally, on some occasions, led to kind of suicidal ideation, uh, which is one of those things that, you know, who wants, who wants to have that experience? Uh, but there were, ep there were episodes where, where it's, it's like easier to think that life would be easier not to be living, right? Um, and so when I think about anxiety, and I think about the depression that goes with that, um, it, it, it's, it's been one of those things I've grappled with a long, long time. And, um, and I thank God I've learned some things along the way. And so I want to talk a little bit about this morning about some of the things I've learned along the way on that. And here's one of the first things I think that's been important for me. And again, I'm going to speak strictly for myself. I'm not giving any kind of medical advice. I'm not giving psychological advice, psychiatric advice. I'm strictly speaking for out of my experience, which may or may not pertain to you and may or not be helpful to you. But this is some of my experience. One of the things that I found very unhelpful is um, an over-spiritualizing of this. Uh, for example, uh, Jesus says, don't worry, right? And, and, and so sometimes people will say, well, if you're worrying, you're not trusting. And if there's where worry is, faith is not. And I and my pacifist self want to punch them in the face. You know, like, don't tell me that. And, and so what, what I, what I want to suggest is that sometimes we take very simple teachings of Jesus and we make them simplistic. And it's important to know there's a distinction between simple things and simplistic explanations of simple things. For example, to speak of love of God is a very simple thing. But it is not a simplistic thing. Many people who take that very, very seriously spend the whole of their lives trying to understand what it means to love God. It's not a simplistic thing. Love of neighbor is a simple teaching. But it's not a simplistic thing. As a matter of fact, one of the things a lot of us learn as we hit middle age is some of the times what you thought was loving your neighbor when you were a kid may in fact be codependency, may in fact be further propagating difficult problems and difficult behaviors. And so what you thought was very simple of love of neighbor may in fact not be love of neighbor after all. But if we take simplistic attitudes towards these things, we can't begin to explore the complex nuances of what these simple things mean. It's the same thing, I think, with worry. Um, I was, uh, I guess it was about four years ago when I, was, when I was getting into this particular episode, I called a friend of mine who's, uh, whom I love very much. He's a psychiatrist 
and he's a psychiatrist who likes to read theology and philosophy, so I uh, particularly like him. And he also likes to read some of the philosophers that, that I have liked to read, you know, so I trust him a lot. And, um, and so I called him and I said, uh, because my doctor had said, I think you should try out this medicine. And so I called this friend and I said, uh, I'm sure you have a long explanation for how you, as a psychiatrist who's a Christian who takes theology seriously, thinks about Christians taking medicine for things like anxiety and depression and so forth. I said, I don't want the long explanation. I said, give me a short paragraph long explanation for your understanding of it. And this is what he said. He said, I tend to think that the reticence in some Christians to taking medicine for things like depression is grounded in the ancient heresy of Gnosticism that refuses to take the body seriously. And I said, you got me. <laughs> Now, if you don't understand what that sentence means, let me unpack, unpack it for you just a second. Uh, starting in the second century, the early church struggled with a, a heresy called Gnosticism. And Gnosticism was this idea that there's a sharp divide between the spirit and the body. And the idea was that if you get this kind of flash of spiritual wisdom or spiritual insight, everything's okay and you don't have to worry about the body. And what my psychiatrist friend was saying is that in the same way that we don't have problems taking an antibiotic for strep throat, if you realize that the brain is a bodily organ that sometimes gets out of whack, you can see the legitimacy of taking medicine for the brain. The brain and all that goes with that is a bodily organ that's physical that uh, responds to all sorts of physical inputs and stimuli. So, so he, he then pushed me on this notion of realize that a lot of the stuff that's happening in us is a bodily experience. Now, uh, again, just, again, talking just from my experience, I, I, I did some medicine for a little while and I did it until it felt like the side effects were worse than what it was helping me with and then I quit. And then I fought with myself and Laura and I fought with each other about whether or not I should try other medicine, which I haven't done. Uh, but that's just, my, that's just me, again, okay? Um, but that pushed me to try other things that I'll talk about here in just a moment. So the idea there, though, is that to realize that we, and especially since the Enlightenment, Christians have tended to think that the solution to everything is in our will and in our rationality. That if I say, I'm going to do such and so, well, if, if, you, if you do something you don't want to do, well, you just haven't chosen to do the right thing. But as we saw earlier on in this term, that's clearly not what the New Testament teaches. Romans 6 and 7 says very clearly, I can choose what I want to do, but I don't do what I want to do. It's not simply about will. And it's not simply about rationality. It's about having a grace in us bodily, a grace in our experience that allows us to live in different sorts of ways. Another kind of thing that I think happens as we over-spiritualize anxiety sometimes is that it overlooks some of the insights of evolutionary biologists who have some very interesting things to say about anxiety. Um, a lot of them will point to the fact that anxiety, is, especially in contemporary experience, is, is a consequence of our fight-or-flight mechanism. Um, we don't have lions in the bushes now that we're worried about, but that anxiety that's there that helped allow the species to survive and thrive is still in us 
and it tries to find something to latch itself onto. But we don't have the lion, so we latch that onto other things in our experience. So what I want to do the time we have left here is to ask our question, ourselves this question. As people of faith, um, what, are, what are some additional ways we may think about dealing with anxiety that threatens uh, to overwhelm us? So I'll, I'll put these in the email. Um, I'm gonna, I've got like seven, seven or eight on my list. So I'm going to run these kind of quickly. And I would encourage you to think for one, to look for one, maybe two at the most that you want to kind of experiment some with this week. Uh, and again, I'll try to summarize these and get it out to you in the email. But just listen for one or two that you think might be helpful to you. Uh, first, if, if you suspect that you might have unresolved childhood stuff, then start tomorrow or this afternoon trying to figure out ways to deal with it. Uh, because if you, the age all of us are in here, if it's still percolating up, it's not just going to go away. You know, so you can either choose to deal with it in your 40s, 50s, 60s, or 70s, or you can die with it still there with you on your deathbed. And that's not, that, you know, I think that's, I think that's true. And I, and I've, I've watched people go to their, go to their deathbed with stuff they never did process, that they never did deal with. It's going to stick with you. And so if, if you, if you think there may be some stuff there, then maybe experiment with saying, let me try this. Let me see how I could deal with it. Um, this could take all sorts of shape, you know, it could take counseling, it could take recovery work, it could take uh, working with a spiritual director. There's lots of options, there's lots of availability, but the fact is, is that a lot of our childhood stuff gets in us very deeply and it doesn't go away without a lot of work. Without a lot of work. I, uh, I, I during the same time I'm talking about, um, I did some, a lot of therapy and counseling stuff that was very helpful to me. And one of the things that I discovered was that a lot of the issues that I had going back to adolescence around shame and my church experience, I, I had begun to deal with intellectually in my 20s and in my 30s. And in intellectually, theologically, I could look at a lot of the stuff that I felt like had been hurtful and I, and I could understand it and I could say, nope, that's not right, this instead of that. And I knew that very clearly in my head. What I didn't realize was how much that still was so deeply rooted in my psyche. And it was so deeply rooted in my, in my emotions and in, in the limbic system or whatever, right? And that it was in there. And it took other kinds of intervention and other kinds of work in order to get some of that stuff out and be able to see it with adult eyes. Uh, and so I, I suggest that you consider that as one possibility uh, because those childhood experiences and the anxiety provoked by those can have a very, very long tail that can hold on to us for a very long time. Here's a second sort of very, very practical thing, and that is um, we've talked some about the serenity prayer, so let me start the second one by talking about the serenity prayer. God, grant me the serenity to accept the things I cannot change, the courage to change the things I can, and the wisdom to know the difference. Right, Reinhold Niebuhr's serenity prayer. Um, so this has um, three major parts, right? Grammy serenity to accept the things I cannot change. So in, in other words, sometimes in life, the most healthy thing to do is nothing and accept what you can't change. Or second, serenity to accept the courage to change the things I can. 
to look at things that I can change, that I can do something about, and then be courageous enough to do something about it. And then third, a request for wisdom to know which, when I'm dealing with something, which of those two it is. Which is a terribly important task of discernment, right? So this, this notion of acceptance that we've talked about in various ways. Uh, and and here's, a, here's a, one very practical way that, uh, that uh, I learned from some book somewhere about acceptance. Is, um, some, and, and, and this has been very helpful for me in, my, in professional life stuff, in work stuff, business stuff, is if I've got a lot of anxiety about something, is to try to figure out, okay, here's this thing I'm worrying about. What's the very worst case scenario? And write it down. Okay, in this situation, the very worst case scenario is this. And then try to come to some acceptance of, if that happens, I will not like that at all. I'll be ticked off, I'll be angry, whatever the case may be. I'll grieve, whatever. But that's the worst case scenario, and I'm going to try to lean into acceptance of that, that this may happen to me. The second step then is work to improve upon the worst case scenario. What can I do today that could make that worst case scenario not come to pass that bad? What can I moderate to mitigate that to make it just a little bit better? Now, there's other kinds of issues and cases though where acceptance, I think, has to take an even longer term acceptance. And, and this is one place where I think Christian faith is of, of utmost importance for me, and that is sometimes I can look at a worst case scenario and say, that really may never change. And I can't see anything that I can do to make it change or help it change. But I'm going to trust that in the resurrection, all things shall be well, and all things shall be made well. Um, and to, to envision in, in, um, in my prayers or in med my meditation uh, somehow some sort of possibility that this thing may be made well in the resurrection. I have found sometimes though that if I will do that meditative practice that it will give me some insights about how to realize that proleptically. That is, if we are people who do believe in the resurrection, then we do believe that unfathomable things can occur. Unfathomable good and reconciliation and possibility can occur. And if we lean into the meditation of that possibility, sometimes it may give us a posture or an insight or a measure of discernment of how in the slightest way to begin to realize what we know will come, what we trust will come, even now in the present. And I've watched this happen with, in myself, and I've watched it happen in some other people who have talked to me about this practice. And um, it's, it's pretty, um, I, I just encourage you to maybe experiment with it and see what it may do for you. Um, third, Laura, that Laura uh, led us into helpfully, this notion about being pra in the present. And that's so funny about the bathroom floor because I thought the very same thing about the bathroom floor last night when I was up in the middle of the night and the, it was cold on my feet. I didn't, of course, think, why don't I get under the house? 
But I did think, I did think, I want to feel the cold on my toes. And there's something, there's something very good about feeling the discomfort uh, that can be very helpful. Fourth is uh, become aware of your physiology and note how, uh, begin to study yourself so that you can be aware of what's going on that you may not consciously be aware of. And then find physiological things that you can do uh, to try to take care of yourself. Uh, for example, uh, midway through this fall, my heartburn came back uh, the week before fall break. And I thought, man, my heartburn again. And when I took time to think what's going on, um, then I made a little list and I thought, well, yeah, of course my heartburn's back. Because look at all this stuff. Of course it's back. And so I, uh, Laura and I, with uh, two of the boys, went off to Bership of Springs in this little cottage. And I slept 30 hours over the course of three nights. And my heartburn went away. Right? So for me, uh, both heartburn and lust are good signs that I'm not in a good place. I need to take care of myself. And I need something that's healthy to provide for my own sort of self. Other kinds of things around physiology that, that uh, you know, there are these studies that show that uh, simple measures of posture will help the spirit, help the emotions. Uh, two in particular, one is don't slump your shoulders and pull them back and stand up straight, sit up straight and pull your, pull your shoulders back. And second is to smile. And that smiling and good posture actually has a positive effect upon your emotions. Or, if you've not done any study about breathing, learn to breathe and learn to breathe well. Here are two, uh, two methods I'll suggest that I have experimented with at some length that I find very helpful. One, this is my name for it, is the X, 2X, 2X divided by 2 model. Um, <laughs> it goes like this. Let us imagine that X is 6, okay? So you breathe in for a slow count of 6, filling, it, filling up from the bottom to the top. Then you hold it for twice that, so hold it for 12. And then you breathe out the average of that for nine. Okay, so breathe in for six. Don't try it right now because I don't want anybody to pass out. <laughs> breathe in for six, hold it for 12, breathe out for nine, and do it 10 times. And uh, that, that has the capacity to trip you into um, what is it? The Oxygen deprivation. Uh, yeah. <laughs> uh, it, it actually has the space to, to get you into a place uh, in, in meditative uh, brainwave state that's actually uh, quite helpful. Here's, here's another one that I've discovered that works marvel, marvels um, that I understand is taught to some SWAT team people when they go through SWAT team training, and that's called square breathing. Um, it, and I, and I, uh, I had just read this, and I was in a case... Uh, like a week after I'd first read this where it was very, very tense and I felt all of this flush of anxiety and fight or flight stuff come up in me and uh, because I didn't know what was about to happen and I remembered square breathing, let's try it. And so while I'm sitting there talking to this person who's very angry, I'm doing my square breathing. I'll explain in just a second. And I was able to stay very calm and listen and just say, okay. And it was fine. So square breathing goes like this. Um, you are uh, probably going to do a little shorter six-second count maybe or five-second count. You breathe in, 
for five or six, let's, let's say five, you breathe in for five, you hold it for five, you breathe out for five, you wait for five, and then repeat. In, hold it, out, wait, and go, all right? Same amount of count each one. And it has this amazing capacity just to take all that fight or flight anxiety stuff and keep it at bay so that you can focus on what's right in front of you. Um, fifth, the, uh, there's, this, there's, this, uh, there's this great stuff on YouTube by this guy named Martin Seligman. He's uh, famous for inventing the school of positive psychology. So what he, what he did a number of years ago was he, he started looking at the way in which psychology very often is geared toward um, disorder. And psychology was always trying to what's wrong with this situation or this person. And what he was trying to say is, what can we learn about what leads to human flourishing? What kind of practices lead to flourishing? Rather than always taking the kind of approach of how do we deal with the problem that's arisen, how do you instead contribute to a life that can preempt some of those things in the first place? So he calls this positive psychology. And you know, one of the, some of the basic things that, that people keep discovering over and over again that shouldn't be a surprise to us uh, is the important, and one, one that is very important to me is this notion of sociability. Uh, there's various studies that talk about the ways in which sociability and having friends and being a part of a community is terribly important for emotional health and mental health and lifespan. Um, and so this notion of engaging with friends and being present to friends and showing up with friends and its great importance upon the psyche, as well as things like exercise and diet, of course. Um, and, and so what, one of the things I want to suggest here on, the, on this fifth notion is that I think it's important for us to think about things like sociability and exercise and diet very much as so-called spiritual practices. We, we tend not to think of the, you know, when, when was the last time you read a book on spiritual disciplines that talked about exercise? Um, that maybe finally these days people are starting to think in those terms. Um, but remember that things like sleep, things like diet, things like exercise, these have a profound impact. When, if we stop with the dualism between body and spirit and we realize that as human beings we're always an integrated self, uh, then all of a sudden you can begin to see these things indeed as so-called spiritual practices. Um, sixth one, quickly. It's helped me to always think in terms of practices of kindness and helpfulness. Um, and to, tr to try to dis set a disposition for myself of just showing up to be kind to whoever comes in front of my path today. There's a, there's a beautiful, um, disproportionately helpful feedback from the practices of kindness. That are, it's a very, I, I don't understand it, except maybe that we're created as social beings. Uh, but there's something very beautiful about trying to set the, the task for ourselves to be kind to whoever crosses my path. Be it store clerks. One of the things I found about store clerks is that very often, if I will ask a store clerk, how are you today? If they say, how are you doing? I say, good, how are you doing? Uh, they often look at me with surprise, and they say, I'm good. Thank you for asking. All right. um, and the, the simple practice of kindness is in such deep need today. 
And it also has a sort of, it's, a, it's a, in some ways kind of a selfish sort of practice as well, ironically, because it has this sort of beautiful return effect. Uh, seventh one that I will suggest for a recovering perfectionist like me is the art of good enough. The art of good enough. You know the old line about how the good is the enemy of the great? Anybody heard that line? That may be true. That may be true. But if it's true that the good is the enemy of the great, then let me suggest that the perfect is the enemy of even the good. The perfect is the enemy of even the good. And I know this from my own experience. All right? So, instead of holding over ourselves perfectionistic sort of expectations, is one way you can be kind is just to be kind to yourself. And be more realistic and say, hey, you know what? The 30-minute walk to school that I did this morning is better than the two-and-a-half-mile trail run I did not do at Percy Warner. <laughs> right? Um, when I turned 40, I finally started taking exercise seriously. And I remember a guy, one of the trainers at the Y saying, there's only two kind of workouts. There's a good workout and there's a great workout. Is any time you show up and do anything, it was good. And then some days you have great workouts. And I've held on to that, right? Anytime I show up, it's a good workout. And then sometimes I get great workouts. Uh, but the enemy, that the, the, the art of good enough is terribly important, I think, to embrace. And then the, this last kind of note is it's important not to think, however, it seems to me, that our goal is to have no stress. Um, and so some people have made the distinction between eustress, EU, eustress, and distress. And it's the eustress that's terribly helpful for us as human beings, right? Um, I, I prepare my Sunday school lesson well ahead, starting at 6.45 a.m. on the Sunday I'm teaching. <laughs> right? um, because that's a, that's a eustress space for me that allows me to do good work in the time that I have to do it, and it works for me, right? So we find the place of where the helpful stress is and begin to be aware of where the distress is and work to keep ourselves out of the distress and make use of the eustress. And related to that, then, is this notion that when you get the butterflies or when you get the anxiety, to see if you can't reframe it as a gift of extra energy you've been given to do the task in front of you. When I, I, when I was a, a young, younger, I had at least two occasions, I recollect, where I would get so anxious about public speaking that I would, I would vomit. I'm not kidding. I would get so distressed that uh, it would just lead me to being very sick at my stomach and finally throwing up on two occasions. Um, I've worked through a number of things about that. One of the things I finally realized when I was probably like in my early 30s was that some of that was just simply pride. I was so concerned about doing really well that there was a deep root of pride in it. So that was the first major step that was helpful in realizing. The second major thing was a shift to instead of being afraid of the anxiety, to treat the anxiety as my friend. It's like, oh, I've got to stand up in front of a bunch of people and I've got to say something worth listening to, hopefully. And I've got all this extra energy that's going to allow me to focus. 
and that will try to keep me engaged. And this is my friend, not my enemy. So trying to find the space of where that anxiety is our friend, not our enemy, is a helpful bodily practice. Um, we've got two minutes. Feedback, questions, comments? One, one and two. Um, just something I mentioned to Laura um, when she was last talking about the worries. Uh, I think it's a real disservice when people talk about stress uh, or, or worry as a sin, and I've heard preachers say that. Um, and like the the passage, it says, "Do not worry." People will read that like it's a command or a sin. When I think it's really meant to be an encouragement, like it's all right, God's going to take care of you. I feel like that's the sentiment that's meant in in. Um, so that's just one thing I'd like to mention. The I can talk about a lot of things about how to reduce. Uh, worry and anxiety, but one of the things that I see very often is that when people come in and for therapy and they're dealing with anxiety, it turns out they're drinking a lot of caffeine, and a lot of the symptoms that you get from having a lot of caffeine uh, can get interpreted as anxiety, and that's just one super simple thing yeah. to like just cut out the caffeine. Yeah, thank you. Thank you. I have had people spiritualize and oversimplify. I'm sure we all have. Do you have an alternative response besides punching them in the face? <laughs> when somebody does say that, because I totally identified. Yeah. How do you respond when somebody does try to minimize or negate? And because that's why I celebrate. Yeah. Well, um, what I what I've tried to do just in. Um, going back to the sociability thing, the importance of sociability, is that I figure out who in my life and who among my friends uh, don't try to fix me. And the people who try to fix me, I stop being very open with. And the people who can just hear me and can say, yeah, I hear you, and this is one thing I've, I've tried one time, and who on very rare occasions will say, are you open to some feedback about that? And they give me the option. That's the kind of that's the kind of friendships I lean into, and so those who respond with that the first kind of thing you talked about, I just I end up kind of leaning away from that at the level of intimacy uh, from me. So that's that's kind of been my which approach. I totally understand. I was just looking for a verbal. Yeah. <laughs> I could give you some, but it probably wouldn't be helpful. Yeah. Thank you all very much. Have a good week.